You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. Our guest today is Brandon Bobart. He is founder at Pisca Peaks Ventures. We're going to talk to him about the world of cannabis, the world of marketing, and all the kind of fun and challenges that come with that. I think as most people know, if you've been listening to this program, uh, you know, doing business in cannabis is not like doing business in other industries. And there's all sorts of kind of trials and tribulations and, and nuances and sometimes roadblocks. But we're going to talk a little bit about where we are with some of these things and what businesses can do to effectively market, communicate with audiences, get their brand, get their message out there. Obviously a huge, important part of any business, particularly for cannabis companies with these kind of growing industries and kind of where we are with with some of these platforms and sort of strategies that uh, have kind of evolved uh, over the years and are continuing to kind of adjust and shift. But with all that, Brandon, welcome to the program. Yeah, Bruce, thank you so much for having me and looking forward to chatting here for a little bit today. Yeah, yeah, pleasure to have you on. So before we kind of dive into everything that's going on today, Give us a little background. How do you get into marketing? How do you get in cannabis? Tell us about the backstory. Yeah, sure. Great. Thanks for that. And uh, so I uh, graduated and became a teacher and educator first. So I did that for several years and realized that was not the way to uh, to my goals. And uh, uh, let's see, about, about 10 years ago, I started working for marketing agencies in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, at that time, craft beer was all the rage. Uh, Charleston was a foodie town, so there was a lot of craft beer, high-end restaurants, and I was running Facebook ads and doing photos and writing blogs and doing Google AdWords. And I realized that while I was serviceable in all those areas, that maybe wasn't what I needed to do long term, particularly the photos. Some bad photos that came out of that work. But I realized through that process that I really loved the storytelling. I loved working with business owners. I loved helping them achieve their goals, but just didn't really know where to to put that energy I uh, started working officially in cannabis in 2018. Okay. I worked for a Asheville, North Carolina-based CBD hemp company that at that time was taking advantage of new legalization with the Farm Bill. They had a very successful brick and mortar. We took that brick and mortar and franchised it together, and I went through the FDD process with them, wrote that FDD with them, launched their franchise offering in 2020, and then took them into uh, 12 or 13 different markets. And it was that experience that really opened my eyes up to the fact that I was very good at sales, 
I was very good at finding relationships and building relationships, and that was going to be my role within the marketing and cannabis industry. So stayed with them for a couple more years, left in 2020, and in 2020, I founded Pisca Peaks Ventures, which took the experience working at agencies and working with a small business and combined them into what I felt was what startup cannabis companies needed, and that was a agency that was nimble, that was flexible, that was cost efficient, that like I tell my clients or prospective clients is a Swiss army knife of digital marketing, meaning we have all the tools you would need to run a successful marketing campaign. However, we don't necessarily need to pay for all of them at any given time because that could become very capital intensive and that may not suit your startup budget. So let's give you something that's nimble, fluid, flexible to meet your goals. And so uh, since 2020, I've been working as the founder of, of Pisca Peaks Ventures. We work with um, cannabis companies across the space. So anywhere from compliance SaaS solutions to B2B consultants, HR firms. We work with robots as a service. We're taking dispensaries to market. So we've really got a nice position in the industry where we're afforded the opportunity to work in a lot of different sub-verticals within the space, which keeps us really energized, gives us a very broad perspective of the industry, and really allows us to bring a broad set of resources to our clients who maybe need a POS system recommendation, or they need a banking partner, or they need someone in the insurance side. So that's really where we are today, and uh, we're excited to be here. Yeah. So, so give us a little bit of an overview for folks that maybe don't know the nuances of really doing kind of marketing sales in the cannabis space. Like what, what are the kind of challenges that cannabis companies have and, and also kind of the, the difference between some of the CBD versus THC, you know, what, how that kind of plays out in terms of where people play in the market? Yeah. I mean, at a high level, I think the challenge that comes with cannabis and marketing it is is you know how long do we have but there there's certainly you know the more well-known pieces like paid acquisition channels for example very limited you know you're not going to get on meta or google and run ads to acquire customers and so just from a purely you know if you're thinking b2c getting customers to a dispensary like that model it's very much different in the cannabis space and so there's a mix of guerrilla marketing organic tactics relationship building influencer marketing looking at compliant cannabis platforms like we work with your umbrellas or excuse me your safe reaches your media gels your surf sides of the world to help deliver that message to consumers but i think then you know the other part of that challenge is so many cannabis companies have come to market at the same time there's frankly not much in the way of differentiation between many of them at the b2c level everyone's fighting over historical cannabis consumers and folks who you know, they're, they're pitching organic and farm to table and, you know, quality <laughs> inputs and, you know, our, our genetics. And so everyone's competing on similar messaging and similar points. And that's caused a lot of confusion. And I think just lack of clarity in the market. And, you know, when you think about branding and you think about building a company, most people don't start out to build, you know, a coffee company. They, you know, our caffeine company, they don't focus on the ingredient when they build the brand, right? They build yeah. a brand around the product. And so that's 
Uh, if you look at CBD and some of the minor cannabinoids and certainly THC, you know, we're taking a, an ingredient essentially to market, not necessarily a brand. So we're competing on price. We're competing for the same customers. And so all that causes, I think, a lot of challenges. And then I think, you know, some of the other challenges that come with cannabis is I think the stat I see thrown around and certainly don't quote me, but 60 plus percent of cannabis business owners are first time business owners, right? So we've got a lot of folks that are not only figuring out a nascent industry with all the regulatory roadblocks, the lack of banking, 280E, no interstate commerce, you know, da, 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 but then also coupling that with this may be my first rodeo or foray into legalized business, whether they're coming from the legacy market or I've got clients in Mississippi as an example where they were comptrollers for the government for 30 years. They loved it, but then they fell in love with cannabis and they got a license and here we are. Right. And all those stories are wonderful, but it also creates challenges. And when you, you know, map that back to digital marketing and what that means, it it's it's very nuanced. It's it's very fragmented, right? You could sit here for thirty minutes and just talk about SEO, but SEO is one of maybe ten to twelve rungs of a successful digital marketing strategy in twenty twenty two. So I think there therein lies some of the challenges and you know, how does THC differ than the minor cannabinoids? You know, the one that jumps out of me is purely interstate commerce and the fact that I can run an e-com site and deliver direct to consumer right at their door, which matches a model that most people are comfortable with. I think a lot of people are hesitant, especially down here in the South where I am, to consider themselves going into a dispensary. That whole part has is foreign to them. They're used to getting on an Amazon or a Shopify site and making purchases. And I think that's why you're seeing this continued battle almost between your THCAs of the world and your THCs. Yeah. And how, I guess, how have you seen this kind of evolve? I mean, when, you know, when all this kind of first started happening, people were trying different strategies and, and a lot of them were working, you know, people are now kind of doing certain things or it seems, it seems like some things have opened up. I mean, what's, what's your kind of, how have the last, you know, four, five, six years kind of played out in terms of marketing strategies for cannabis companies? Well, you know, you're, I think you're continually getting more competition. You know, there's, there's more players in the space where when I think back to my experience with the CBD brand I started with in 2018, it was wide open. And there was a need and a curiosity and an interest around that particular cannabinoid that had not existed previously. I mean, we were educating most of our clients on what CBD was, what it looked like, how it wasn't THC, what's an endocannabinoid system, right? Like all of these preliminary conversations. And it was easier at that phase to scoop up market share. And I think if that company had launched today, we would have a totally different outcome and trajectory. I think it would have been a totally different ballgame. So I think you've got a continued evolution and, and, and also just the cannabinoids too, because if you're kind of thinking outside just the, the regulated THC space, you know, it seems like every year since 2018, 2019, when CBD really hit hard, there's been a new cannabinoid out. And I think it's causing a lot of confusion in the marketplace, where I think a lot of people at the end user spot, frankly, may not really understand nor care whether they're using THCA or THC or HHC. And I use the example of I went and visited my sister-in-law in in Texas last week and we're down there, we're hanging out. She's not a cannabis user, not someone I would ever qualify as even cannabis curious, but here she is and she pulls out her bag of Delta 9 by, you know, volume hemp-derived gummies and then said, hey, I like these much better than these ones I actually got from a, a friend got it from a dispensary in Colorado and she didn't really care. 
right? So it wasn't, I think it's more the folks who come from the legacy market who have been in cannabis for a long time that are really married to this idea that THC is almost this like holy molecule or holy yeah. compound. And I think they care much more about it than the end users. So you've got this dichotomy in the industry of people who have fought long and hard to get a particular compound medicinally and recreationally available. And they're wondering why more people at the end user role don't care about that and aren't seeing the differences in that compound and say some new derived synthesized compound in frankly likely someone's garage. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Do you, I guess where were you, where are we in terms of the segment, you know, segments that we're marketing towards, right? You mentioned, you know, everyone kind of battling over traditional cannabis consumers. You know, a little bit of mention some of these new kind of segments. How are you kind of dividing up the world when it comes to targeting cannabis users, you know, both traditional and new, like what are the segments that are kind of teasing out for you and what, what are the ones that are most interesting and that you're helping clients with? Sure. I mean, I, you know, obviously you've got your previously long-term cannabis user who's either vaped or, you know, combusted, you know, cannabis for many years. And I think for them, it's, it's certainly one segment, but then I think, you know, like any sales or marketing, what's the transformation you're selling? You know, I, if I'm a, a weight loss coach. I don't sell going to the gym and losing five pounds. I sell fitting in those jeans. You know, I sell looking good on the beach, right? And so it's getting those business owners to understand beyond the product itself, what does your product allow your consumer to do? And you as a brand, what do you stand for? What are your principles? What are your ethos? What's what's the reason for existing? Communicating that to the consumer versus focusing on the level of THC or some of these other derivatives of the product that while they may matter to the creators and some of the more longstanding you know, segments within the industry, they don't necessarily matter to that end user. So really trying to differentiate yourself and build a brand that stands for something beyond the product is what I work with on clients. And then trying to break those down into buckets where a lot of the exercises I work on with early stage cannabis companies is defining those ideal customers. What are the buying habits? What are the buying personas need to look like? What's the messaging need to sound like to relate to them? Where would those folks consume social media? What kind of publications are they reading? What kind of podcasts are they listening to? Because so many folks are out there just competing on people who already use cannabis or are already familiar with cannabis. And I think that's just a finite market. There's there's only so many legacy, if, if that's the term you want to use, cannabis users out there. And so for cannabis to grow as a market and grow market share, you've got to bring new users to the table. And what's the process for doing that? Um, and I think that's you know something that's been done well by some brands, right? You've got your Wild and your Cookies and Juanas and some of these brands that have built brand recognition where you know, if I walk into a, a vape shop or something in South Carolina or North Carolina where THC is highly illegal, you're going to see cookie swag there, right? So they've done a great job of permeating the culture because they stand for something beyond the product. And I think that's something that a lot of the, the earlier stage companies are lacking. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break to hear some words from our sponsors. And now back to our program. In terms of some of these networks, I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, the metas and the Googles and stuff like that are, you know, restrictive still in terms of what you can do relative to kind of cannabis products and services and stuff. And, and some of these other, you know, platforms, Surside, et cetera, that are sort of cannabis friendly. I mean, I, is this the way this world is going to work? It, are these 
you know, is this, are these viable alternatives? Does it really have reach? I mean, what's your assessment of, you know, some of these platforms and, and what's working, what's not around them? Well, I think the bigger macro lens to consider, Bruce, is how effective are digital acquisition channels in general? Like, let's forget cannabis for a minute. If we work with several direct consumer e-com brands outside the space and their customer acquisition cost has gone through the roof, their cost per click has gone through the roof. And that all has to do, in my mind, with a saturation of digital advertising you know just putting a meta ad in front of a consumer it's not effective anymore and it's certainly not economically viable for all companies so regardless of whether meta or google change their you know laws and regulations around advertising i think that's tbd i think the larger conversation is is digital acquisition you know as effective as it used to be and my thought is is it's become saturated and it's become a little noisy and i think people are tuning out to ads a little bit more and they're looking for authentic creators and authentic influencers that they trust to help them make their purchasing decisions you know you're seeing some of these large youtube guys like mr beast i think is his name he just opened a hamburger shop and had 20,000 people at the hamburger shop you wouldn't have achieved that you know zeitgeist moment without the, the audience and the community and those other pieces. So I think the whole digital acquisition funnel is going to need to be reexamined. And then you throw into that mix, you know, changes in how we track attribution on digital acquisition channels. You know, you can't just log into Facebook Business Manager anymore and trust the data in there because of all of the changes in iOS and cookies and third-party attribution softwares. And so that, that whole game has been blown up to a certain degree. So I think it's, you know, it's, it goes back to that general principle of marketing. You've got to put yourself in front of the right person at the right time, and you've most likely got to put yourself in front of them seven to ten times before they consider you. And so you've got to get creative in there. And certainly the Surfsides uh, and those folks of the world do a great job in terms of delivering the messaging to the right people at the right time. The, the problem is, is, is it economically viable? Is it sustainable? And is it profitable? That part is TBD. And it it just depends on the brand and the creative, and there's a, you know several variables from there. And so I think you know you're seeing you see such a knee-jerk reaction sometimes. You know people, it's like when COVID hit, we went so hard to remote work, and I think eventually remote work will become tiring for some people and will revert back. And so I think you saw that uh, in the same token with uh, some of these acquisition channels where it became so digital heavy that some of the more traditional acquisition funnels have been forgotten. And I think it'll find a, a happy balance over time. Yeah. I guess, do you see, I mean, it sounds like most cannabis companies that you're working with specifically want a, a provider that has cannabis experience. Is that going to be the case for a while? Do you, do you envision non-cannabis focused or cannabis exclusive marketing kind of uh, service firms actually having a foothold in cannabis or, or do you need to be like 100% cannabis to really work in this industry still? I think at the end of the day in the B2B world, people buy from people they like, you know, and there's attorneys and security firms and transportation companies and you fill in the blank vertical. So many folks are jumping from the non-cannabis to the cannabis world. And will some of them find their footing? Yeah, because they get relationships and they get sales and they can learn on the fly. Will others? No, because people see right through them, right? And I think it also depends on, you know, are you plant touching 
or are you not plant touching? I think yeah. there's a lot more complexity with a dispensary or a cultivator and the nuance that comes with that particular aspect of it versus say, you know, one of our clients does HR services for any cannabis company. There's a playbook there that's a little bit more repeatable and predictable. You know, you can do the trade shows, you can do the thought leadership, you can use LinkedIn, you can write SEO content. So I think that part is a little more clear. I think the part that's still very much up in the air is that, that plant-touching, consumer-facing dispensary role because we're in a place where those markets are being built in front of us and some states are, you know, letting them have uh, kind of free reign in terms of number of licenses and where's the supply meet the demand. And, you know, I hear stories of cannabis just sitting in warehouses and beans in storage and not getting out to market or the cannabis in the shelves is seven to 10 months old. I mean, that yeah. tells a story that there's way more supply than there is demand. And what are we going to do about that? Right. And do you think that is real oversupply or is this just, you know, people are going to gray market and black market or, you know, it's just the legal market is. Oh not, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I, yeah, you're a hundred percent. It's, you know, if I can go down the road and get it from my buddy who I've always, you know, received yeah. my cannabis from, why would I change that relationship to go pay more at a place that frankly feels a little sterile? You know, just everyone tries to compare dispensaries to a bar, a bar you sit and hang out in, right? Mm -hmm. You don't go to a dispensary to hang out. It's like, I get my stuff, I send you out the door, we lock it all up in a bag and off you go, (laughs) right? It's like, we don't want anyone to know we were here. And so (laughs) until that taboo goes away, I just don't see that changing because inevitably someone cuts out of their life. You know, this is not Pineapple Express. This is not where someone goes to a random dealer and sits in their house and hates them. Most people have very strong bonds with their gray market, black market dealer. You know, I'm in the Carolinas. I have a great relationship with my buddy. I make a trip. We hang out. I see his family. It's wonderful. Like, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. However, you've got to change people's hearts and minds. And and that's a challenge. Yeah. And and where do you see that playing out? I mean, specifically around kind of brands. I mean, you mentioned some of these in the beginning that were really doing a good job. But I mean, is this going to shake down to, uh, you know, a handful of federal national brands and then a whole bunch of you know, local crafty kind of producers? I mean, what what's the landscape going to look like? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. And, you know, I certainly, unfortunately, hate to say it, but America is a, an economy of scale. And over yeah. time, whether that's five years or 50 years, I, I wouldn't predict. But I do believe we'll see a consolidation because you start throwing in things like logistics and interstate commerce and storage and payment processing and carrying the inventory cost on your balance sheet. All those things get easier at scale. And you look at what happened in the craft beer industry. I mean, for a while it was, you know, everybody's all like, we're a local brewer and that's still there. But what happened? You know, your Wicked Weed, your Goose Island, your, you know, your players got bought up because Anheuser-Busch could provide the logistics. They could provide the distribution. They could put their product in stores. And at the end of the day, we're all capitalists, or at least most of them are capitalists. And they're looking to start a business to make money and exit or to provide for their family. And the checks will get bigger and the opportunities will get bigger. And eventually, you know, you'll start seeing that happen. And it's, you know, it's interesting to me because I watched all this. I wasn't at BizCon and this is going on this week while we're recording this. And I saw a lot of hate, you know, some of the, Mm -hmm. the CEOs of the MSOs were speaking and the hate and the animosity and cannabis towards them is very interesting to me because, you know, it, cannabis folks always position themselves as loving and accepting <laughs> and we're, you know, embracing until, until it's about cannabis. And then they're just like, you know, a big middle finger. And, and it's just, it seems toxic. And the fact that you would spend your free time 
talking about somebody on a public platform that you don't agree with because they've built a successful business comes off as very jealous and very mm-hmm. a little a little I feel badly for them yeah. and they've got to separate themselves from the fight that they went through to get it to where it is and understand if they don't let go of their baby it's it's not going to make it you know and so what was all that for right and I, you know, I've certainly seen some back and forth on LinkedIn and other social platforms that leave a lot to be desired. And I just would really wish that everyone would focus on their corner of the world, focus on what they can control and not what other some individual decides to do with their time and, you know, just be at peace with it. Yeah. yeah. You know, as you kind of work between CBD, THC and these different states, I mean, what are you... I guess, which states are you noticing or or have you have stood out to you in terms of, you know, having, you know, particularly innovative or challenging kind of regulations and strategies and anything of note as you look across kind of the cannabis landscape in the U.S.? Well, yeah, I mean, we had a one of my brands is licensed through Tilt Holdings and uh, we, we started in Mass and Mass is pretty wide open. And then we moved to Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania is, and also Ohio is right behind that. They're far from wide open, right? The way you can position it. I think a good example of this is uh, Ricky Williams brand, you know, it's called Heisman. When it launched in PA, it was called H. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know who decided that H was a good moniker for a CPG product that kind of maybe gives some different connotations to it. But I think that's some kind of microcosm where they just kind of chop it off of the legs. They make it something that's not. They take all the work and equity and things yeah. that went into building that brand and just say, you know what, that that's not going to work here. Um, Ohio, having everything have to funnel through the Department of Pharmacy oh, and get everything yeah. approved and every flyer, every five-by-five card. Like, it's very prohibitive because yeah. marketing requires pivoting. And if you can't pivot on a dime, then how are you ever going to run an effective marketing program? Yeah. And one may even say that they're not motivated to have you successfully market. They don't necessarily care. I Was don't that, know. Do you think that's it? I mean, I, I don't it, know. it does feel that way. It does feel sometimes it's almost like punitive. Yeah. I, you know, it's hard to say. Like, I don't want to lump a whole group of individuals together because I think everyone has a unique perspective. But as a whole, those were the regulations that were decided upon by that state and by the, you know, f- people who were elected to that, you know, run that state. And so to me, it, it, it's a mix of fear and control, I think, kind of manifested in these very tight regulations um, because they don't want to see it, you know, kind of roll out. But then I compare that to a Mississippi and we have several clients there. Uh, one, they were they applied for a license July 14th. They were awarded that license July 28th, right? Then they were able to open or be open within three months, right? So you're seeing some of that. And then the, the you know, kind of word on the ground is that they're funneling feedback back to the powers that be and they're hearing that and they're reciprocating and, you know, making some adjustments early on, right? And so, you know, it's, that's the interesting part to me is each state's going to be different. Each one has a little bit different approach. There's going to be different movers and shakers within each market. And, you know, it's a moving target. Like whatever holds true in quarter one is going to be different by quarter three. And so, you know, to me, the big opportunity is the South, right? You've had a very pent up demand in the South. There's a lot of major markets in Texas and Georgia and Tennessee and all these great, you know, wonderful Southern places that to me, that's the next frontier. If you were focused on building a brand and, you know, acquiring market share like that, those would be the areas I would focus on. I see so many folks fighting over kind of leftovers in Colorado and other legacy markets. And I just think that's an uphill battle. not saying you can't win business there. not saying it's not worth the while, but it definitely feels like more of a challenge at this point. Bloody, kind of a bloody market. Sure. Yep. 
And what's your thought on uh, New York, New Jersey, just giving it their, they're kind of in the throes of trying to come online and, you know, obviously pretty major markets. Um, sure. Any, any insights or opportunities that you've seen there? What's your take? Yeah. I mean, I was in Manhattan earlier this year and I think every single corner had a bus or a gray market <laughs> dispensary. Yep. And, you know, knowing the way that they incentivize police to, you know, hold things accountable, it just doesn't feel like yet they're highly motivated to squash that. And I think what you'll see is an initial blip of energy where, hey, you know, all of a sudden you go to this new, pretty, shiny dispensary and you can, you know, do it the official way. I think that'll, you know, let's say early adoption curve where it peaks. And then I could see six to 12 months after that, it really dwindling because people will go back to their habits. They'll realize that it's more expensive. Uh, the experience won't be what they want. You know, they couldn't get mushrooms from under the table from the guy that, you know, also had those available. Like there's just going to be little pieces that I think, you know, it'll be shiny object syndrome for a while and then people will lose interest. And the fact that they're both coming online and, you know, I don't want to say the same time. I think New Jersey's ahead of New York, but the fact that they're so close in proximity, I think, you know, they're not going to benefit in the way that Colorado did for many years where people were traveling to Colorado yeah. to visit those markets. And everyone's like, well, why is Colorado losing market share, or losing revenue? It's because you can buy it in New Mexico now. <laughs> exactly. you can, I mean, you know, they're not coming. They're not, we flew to Colorado multiple times in 2014 uh -huh. and 15 to purchase cannabis. It was neat. It was fun, mm -hmm. you know. But if you remember back, and I, I don't, you know, I know the, the alcohol analogies are always a little overdone, but you know, people used to take brewery tours for several years. Like people are like, Oh my God, let's go check out this brewery. It smells like wheat. It's stinky. It's like a bunch of vessels. Oh my God. But you saw that for years. Does anybody take a brewery tour anymore? No. Yeah. Right. Because it doesn't No one. it's, it's old news. We've done it. And so, yeah. <laughs> and so I think that's, you know, it's, it's going to be new. It's going to be shiny. People are going to be into it, but the five to 10 year window is such a crapshoot. And I think too, it's like this larger conversation of, of companies. It's like, they're so focused on the genetics and, you know, all these pieces is the end user care. Does the person who's never consumed cannabis today, do they care what the genetics are? I don't know. If we see cannabis drinks at say the NBA finals, it's not going to say this was grown with GG4 on it. Right. It's, it's not going to happen. Like it's, it's that's not going there. So I think some of these older pieces of cannabis culture, I hate to say it, I don't think they're going to die. That's not what I'm, I'm implying. But I do think that they will not reach mass adoption like many people feel. Yeah. Yeah. Brendan, it's been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, more about the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? Yeah, thanks. LinkedIn's a great place. So Brandon Bobart, last name is B-O-B-A-R-T. You can find me there. All my contact information, email, website, videos, examples of our work are there. My website is piscapeaksventures.com and you can reach me at brandon at piscapeaksventures.com. That's great. I'll make sure all the links and handles and everything are in the show notes. So awesome. Get that information. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Absolutely, Bruce. Thanks for all you do for the industry and appreciate your time. That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, Download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter.